Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 11 through 12 today. Wonderful couple verses. Uh, While you're turning there, a couple of you have asked about the translation of the Bible that I'm using. Uh, I'm using the HCSB, stands for Holman Christian Standard Bible. Uh, Most of you don't care what translation I'm using, and that's fine. Uh, You don't have to switch. That's not why I'm telling you. There are uh, a lot of faithful versions of the English Bible that you can use. Uh, So this is for those of you that have asked. For those of you that care about translations, you want to learn a little bit more about the ins and outs of what goes into a Bible translation, I posted a short little blog post on the church website. If that's something you want to geek out over with me, you can go to realitysb.com, click on the blog link and read all about it. Otherwise, just bring your Bibles to church, amen? And we'll get crazy together. Ephesians chapter 4. Let's read what Paul says, starting in verse 11 and verse 12, and we'll stop right there. It says this, And he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the training of the saints in the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray over it. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the full counsel of God that you have given to us to bless and to edify and to transform. God, right now we're praying that we would be awfully aware of the presence of God in this place. That like Thomas, after experiencing and after encountering the resurrected Jesus Christ, we would be able to say with Him, my Lord and my God, and fall to our knees. I pray that in this place, Christ, You would be able to say to us as well, Though Thomas saw and was able to put his fingers into the holes in my hands and in my feet, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Let it be said of us that we believe in the resurrected Jesus Christ. Lord, you would have your full rule and reign in our church today to transform us for the glory of God and for your mission. Thank you that we get to come before you today justified in the sight of God by grace alone. Pray that that in itself would excite us about your word today, that you are right now speaking directly to us. Pray that, Holy Spirit, you would open our spiritual ears to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Recent study by the Pew Forum, I believe it was uh, within this past week, mentioned our country, at least Christians in the West, fall from religious observances, and I quote, the number of Americans who do not identify with any religion continues to grow at a rapid pace. One-fifth of the U.S. public and a third of adults under 30 are religiously unaffiliated today, the highest percentages ever in Pew Research Center polling. Now, there are plenty of variables that go into why and to what that means and why that would happen and what we mean by religion, but I'll just couch it in my own generation's words. We are spiritual, just not religious. Or as one popular book would put it, we love Jesus, just not the church. 
Usually when young people, and perhaps some older people as well, speak of religion, we speak of that which entails the rules and the authority that goes along with it, with the leadership, with the creeds, with the organization. We love Jesus as a person and as a figure. We even love some of the things that he says, just not all of the stuff that he says. Really the stuff that kind of gets in my way. We love the spirituality. We love the organic feeling of spirituality. We even love some of the things in Christianity that kind of makes us live better lives. It's just that other stuff that claims authority in our lives. It's the organization of those things. And perhaps it's even the authority of the Scriptures. We love certain things that Jesus says, but maybe not all of it. My question to you today is... To ask ourselves, are these things bad? Are the creeds, are the authority of the scriptures, are even the leadership and the organization around certain beliefs bad? And I would say, no. In fact, the New Testament, as we're going to read for ourselves, seems to present these. No, it does not seem. It absolutely presents them as crucial to the growth of the church. What I want to do for the next 34 minutes and 41 seconds, give or take a few, is to show you how this list of people and their functions, prophet, the apostle, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher, work to equip the body of Christ. I am going to pull from as many verses as I possibly can. I have very little time to present this case, and this case is absolutely imperative for the church today and for us as believers gathering together. So I'm going to eschew all humorous illustrations. I hope you will forgive me. We're just going to go crazy and get straight to it. Is that all right with you? We'll laugh next week. I just want to introduce you to some of these people that Paul brings up. Not to put them on a pedestal as if they have all to do with the mission of God. But I I first want to introduce us to some of these people that Paul is talking about. Please, pay attention to these things because it is going to matter for you. Let's talk about the prophet. We know prophets from, uh, if you've spent any amount of time in the Old Testament, is that type of person that seems to get new revelation from God. Whether it's in the Old Testament, looking forward to the Messiah, or in the New Testament, prophets looking back to Christ, they all seem to get this new revelation of Christ in God's unfolding redemptive plan. Now that office and function of the prophet is not to be confused with the New Testament gift of prophecy. Remember last week, we spoke about Christians getting gifts from the power of the Holy Spirit to do certain things, one of which is to prophesy. They function in similar ways, but we are not to confuse the office of prophet and the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy, in a nutshell happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon a person for prophesying, that particular person will have something brought to mind spontaneously that they probably did not know or maybe did not know for the edification of the church. So if you are prophesying, the Holy Spirit comes upon you to reveal to you something that perhaps someone around you did not know or that you did not know that needed to be said in that moment. That happens today. But a prophet, though they do that also, 
A prophet, at least as Paul describes, has the authority that we do not to speak and to write words which are the very words of God in an absolute sense. So you see that difference. We could say that the apostles and prophets were authoritative and the prophetic gift is edifying. Now, someone today could speak in the life of the church a prophetic utterance, and it can be authoritative to the degree that it measures up with the Scriptures. So that is the biggest emphasis and difference between the two. They both seem to have the same gift, but the prophet is authoritative. The gift is edifying and authoritative to the degree that it measures up with Scripture. Let's talk about an apostle. Because those two overlap just a little bit. They both have something revealed to them by the Holy Spirit. But what is an apostle? You might have heard the term thrown around. Perhaps if you uh, read through Paul's letters or some of the Gospels and you see the the 12 disciples, but are, are they also the 12 apostles? What's the difference between a disciple and an apostle? And also Paul is an apostle and some of these other guys are apostles. What is an apostle? We can probably say that there are at least three things. There are probably more than that, but there are at least three things. One, we could say that an apostle is personally commissioned by Jesus Christ. Personally commissioned by Jesus Christ as a special representative. Paul said this of himself in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. I am Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. An apostle is someone who is personally commissioned by Christ. Now, aren't we all, as Christians, commissioned by Christ on mission to make disciples? Yes. But what makes an apostle an apostle? They were personally commissioned by the resurrected Jesus in bodily form for a specific task. We could also say that an apostle is authoritative. They had a special authority as though they were speaking from God Himself. Now, if I get a word from the Lord to speak to you, you listen to it in direct proportion to how faithful it is to Scripture. But when a prophet spoke in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, they spoke as though God was speaking Himself. That's why it was written down in the Scriptures that we have. It is binding and authoritative. So they're authoritative. An apostle was divinely commissioned Not just to hear words from the Lord, but to start and establish churches by that authoritative proclamation of what God revealed to them. God spoke to them as the Holy Spirit moved upon them. They wrote it down, established churches around that revelation. Lastly, we could say that that authority was was special to them. In fact, uh, let me backtrack a little bit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37... Paul actually speaks to people who seem to have the gift of prophecy. And what does he say to them? He says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. Okay. You might have the gift of prophecy. You might be able to speak in tongues. You might have a word from the Lord. But you all need to recognize that what I speak is the command of the Lord. Listen to what he says after that. If anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. Wow, how about Paul? Humble brag. Humble brag by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, we could say that an apostle is not just 
personally commissioned or authoritative as though speaking from God himself, but unique. Apostles were unique. I would say unique to the first century. Not everybody would like to hear that. We'd like to have these types of apostles roaming around freely. And I'm not, I don't have a problem with that, but we first have to look at what the qualifications of an apostle were to begin with. One of the biggest qualifications of an apostle was that they had to personally encounter Jesus after his resurrection with their very own eyes. Very important because they would write down what they saw for us. Personally encounter a resurrected Jesus and see him with their own eyes. We see this in a couple places in Acts chapter 1 verse 21 when Judas Iscariot, uh, uh, Iscariot excuse me, betrays Jesus, they look for a replacing apostle. They say, verse 21, Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, from among these it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. Say, well, yeah, well, the twelve walked and saw all of that with Jesus, but what about Paul? Well, Paul actually says that about himself too. He says in verse, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 3 through 8, I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then He appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one abnormally born, He also appeared to me. This has tremendous implications for us. That means Mary Baker Eddy is not an apostle. That means Joseph Smith is not an apostle. That means your crazy uncle from the sticks in Arkansas is not an apostle. That means no matter how much I pound the pulpit and proclaim to be an apostle, which I will never do, I am not one. I don't tell you anything new. I just tell you what the Lord handed down through them to us. The question that we would ask is, well, wait a minute. Don't we need apostles and prophets, for that matter, to function today? Isn't that what Paul is saying right here in verse 11? He personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, for the training of the saints. We'd first have to backtrack and say, well, what was the purpose of an apostle or a prophet? What was their main function? And you could just turn back a couple pages to Ephesians chapter 2 and see that in verse 19 and 20 where Paul says, says this is of us, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. We are God's household. Listen to this. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. There's the purpose right there. Their purpose, Peter, John, James, Paul, Apollos, so on and so forth, was to lay a foundation for the church through the Word of God and by confirming that with power. In fact, Paul would go on to say in Ephesians 3, verse 5, this gospel 
was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Well, you would say, yeah, I know that that's what they did back then, and that's all fine, but perhaps we need a second generation of apostle or some type of super awesome abnormal person, not like the rest of us, that will come and give us fresh new revelation for today. Well, here's what Paul would say about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 9 and 11. We are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. Okay, wait a minute. That is nuts. No longer is the church building a set of walls and a set of asphalt and a set of rebar and ground. The building is actually living, breathing people in which God dwells in by his spirit. Peter would say, you are the living stones. You are the living rebar. You are the living walls by which God has chosen to put his spirit and dwell. Tangent, reading on. According to God's grace that was given to me, listen to what he says. I, Paul, an apostle, have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and another builds on it. But each one must be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. I take that to mean that Paul is saying Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment and explosion of all necessary revelation. He is the fullness of God dwelling in bodily form. And I have revealed everything that you need to know about him to be saved. There does not need to be anything added to the person of Jesus Christ. That's why the author of Hebrews would say in his 12th chapter, verse 1, Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways, but in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. Christ Jesus is the final word for the church. He is the fullness of revelation. He is our adequacy. He is our sufficiency. There is nothing that is needed beyond him. In fact, nothing can compare to that type of revelation. You can spend the next 90 years of your life trying to understand the fullness of God in bodily form, Jesus Christ, and rack your brain on the way to your deathbed trying to figure it all out. He's too much for the finite mind to comprehend, and we are to be spending our lives drenched in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That foundation for revealing Christ has been set in stone. You would say, but aren't people still commissioned in some apostolic form today in other ways? I, I get that, you know, people can't add to the Bible like Paul and those guys did. I know that, not in a foundational way, but isn't there a sense in which some of us are anointed apostolically to go out? Some would say, even the word for apostle comes from this root word meaning to be sent. I know that there's apostles that started all of this stuff, but aren't there a sense lowercase a apostles that are to go out as messengers? Yes. We see that in the New Testament. We see that today. There seems to be a type of person, perhaps with an apostolic gift, that does, uh, we might call it, frontier work. 
going to unreached people groups where no one has ever gone before or starting new things by the power of God. We might even call it something uh, like church planting or something of that type of flavor. People going out with a special calling where no one has gone before. Yes, there does seem to be that work of the Spirit on people's lives for that calling. But should we call those types of people apostles? I don't think there's anything in the New Testament that says you can't. But think about it for a moment. Would it not be a little bit confusing when we speak not of the actual apostles, uppercase A, but what they gave to us in the inspired word of God that we read? Would it not cast a shadow on the sufficiency of Scripture? Wouldn't it maybe, I'm just asking, deaden the original extraordinary intent of God in people like Peter and, and, and Paul and James? Would it not just be a little bit confusing to call just people apostles just because they have an anointing on their lives? Actually, would it not just be a little bit presumptuous? Listen, no major leader in church history has ever called themselves an apostle. Read them. Not Athanasius, not Augustine, not Luther, not Calvin, not Wesley, not Whitfield. None of them. These people were movers and shakers. Augustine's writing shattered and uh, uh, shaped Christian thought for the next thousand years after his life. When Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the wall in Wittenberg and when he translated the scriptures into his native Germany, it transformed Christian thought for half a millennium. When Whitfield and Wesley and people of that nature began to take to horseback, proclaiming the gospel, they formed the birth of nations. None of them called themselves apostles, but you want to start a ministry in Isla Vista and you want to take that title on for yourself? I mean, I'm not going to stop you, but a little presumptuous? Listen, there are people in this room whom the power of the living God is going to come upon to change and shape and transform culture and people in our day and in our age. And it's going to happen regardless of what you call yourself. It doesn't matter if you call yourself apostolic or you call yourself the scum of the earth like Paul did. The Holy Spirit will do what he does with people who are willing. Just be faithful. Don't covet a weird title or a position or a place, especially when we see no hint of that in the New Testament, no hint of apostolic succession. You see, apostles never appointed other apostles. They appointed elders. You see that in Acts 14.3, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. You know why? They did that. They brought up elders and pastors and teachers and evangelists to teach the message that the Holy Spirit had given them already. In Titus chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, In God's own time, He has revealed His message, the whole of Scripture, in the proclamation that I was entrusted with uh, by the command of God our Savior. Philippians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul would say, Hold firmly to the message of life. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, he would say, Therefore, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, either by our message or by our letter. 
1 Corinthians 15.2, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, he actually tells people to stay the course. He says, I have applied all of these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Jude, in his uh, third verse, would say, you need to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, but Paul takes this young hoodlum, he makes him an elder, he puts him in a, a church that he established in uh, Ephesus, and he says to Timothy, all right, Timothy, I need you to come up with something new. I mean, my stuff was really good, but that, I mean, Pauline's stuff is just so 80-32. I need, we need a new revelation, so come up with something fresh and awesome and modern. No, he says, Timothy, proclaim the message. Proclaim the message. Persist in it, whether convenience or not. Rebuke, correct, encourage with great patience and teaching. Why, Paul? I've got my own thing to teach. I've got a lot of stories and a lot of funny anecdotes and a lot of self-help theories and I've got some special revelation. Why do I need to teach what God gave you? Paul, for the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine. Is this not true of our own age? I am spiritual, just not religious. People will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. That's why Paul would tell Timothy in a young age in chapter 2 verse 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Some of you at this point would say, dude, spent two-thirds of your sermon talking about apostles. I, struggling with my job and how to pay the bills. Could you lay off the apostles for a second? I don't care about the apostles. I spent a disproportionate amount of my time this morning speaking about apostles for this reason so that you can see and be convinced that the glory was never in the person or in the apostle or even in their function but in the divine message that they left you with that sits in your living room. To persuade you somehow by the grace of God that the power is in the message preached. That you don't need your own personal apostle or spiritual guru or self-help master to be sitting in your living room. You need the voice of God to speak to you in this day and age. And he speaks to you loudly through the word of God. That's why Paul would say to the Thessalonians, this is why we constantly thank God because when you received the message about God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the message of God, which also works effectively in you believers. God help us. That message that Paul keeps referring to is the whole counsel of God in the Scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation, it's the 
good news of God in Christ by the Holy Spirit as laid out and unpacked in the redemptive story of the Scriptures. It is the law and it is the gospel. Unpacked and put together and unpacked again. If you need a special someone to come along in your life, as sometimes we do, that's not bad. But you have to do exegetical origami with the Scriptures to make it say that there is somehow a continuing line of special apostles and prophets or people who are here to give you secret revelation that you cannot find from what has already been revealed. That is not what the Bible teaches. That's Gnosticism. The Gnostics were a first century, second century group, a sect that pulled away from Christianity, believing that they had the way to salvation which was locked up in a secret revelation of knowledge that no one else had. You guys got, you know, Paul and John and the Bible, but we have secret stuff. And if you want to get saved, you've got to get on the inside. It started early enough that some of the apostles, before they died, were able to address Gnosticism as it was taking root. John the Apostle was one of them, who wrote in 2 John chapter 8, uh, 2 John wrote, Watch yourself. So you don't lose what we have worked for, but that you may receive a full reward. Listen to this. Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one, has both the Father and the Son. See, the problem is that we do not really consider the word to be sufficient. This can be vividly seen in the fact that only 19%, according to the Barna Group, only 19% of born-again adult Christians have a biblical worldview that matches what they read in the Bible. One out of five. The problem is not that we have a drought of fresh revelation. The problem is that we are biblically illiterate. We have been supplied with everything that we need for life and godliness, and we don't know what it says. Either by a lack of knowledge of the scriptures, we just don't read it, or a lack of confidence in the scriptures, we read it, but we don't take it, uh, we don't take it seriously. Or perhaps because we think we're Christians, but we're not even saved and can't understand what God is telling us. But we show up to church. Spiritual maturity comes from knowing and living the breathed word of God in community. That's why the author of Hebrews would write, and he would actually, he, writing to a church, he would see that there were certain people in the church that, 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 were, uh, that were, had been professed Christians for a long time, some of them for years. Maybe some of them knew Jesus when he was around, and there they are in this church, not growing not maturing, not getting past some of the basic tenets. And the author of Hebrews says to them in chapter 5, hey, you guys, we have a great deal to say about this, and it's difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. What he says is sobering. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained 
Solid food for those whose senses have been trained. What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 4? The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers have been given as gifts from God to you that they would train the saints. That training is why the following three in that list exist. What does an evangelist do? An evangelist proclaims the message that was given by the Holy Spirit. We often think of those as the street corner uh, preacher or the itinerant person that just jumps around and bounces everywhere and hops around on sofas and preaches in parking lots. That's also, I guess, that's an evangelist too. But we also need, in addition to evangelists preaching to make new converts, we need evangelists to preach to old converts. I need some of y'all to preach the gospel to me because I will so easily forget it tomorrow when I fail or when I grow in self-sufficiency. We need a constant refreshing stream of gospel to flow through our church on a regular basis. What does a teacher do? If an evangelist proclaims the message of Christ, a teacher explains the message of Christ. That's not just pastors, that's comm group leaders. Praise God for you. That's also youth leaders, that's children ministers and children volunteers. That's parents teaching their children. That's mentors teaching the younger men and women. That's friends teaching their other friends. Well, if an evangelist proclaims a message, the teacher explains a message, a pastor leads in the message that has been proclaimed and explained and brought. In fact, the word pastor comes literally from the term used for shepherd. We are called to shepherd and nourish according to what? Our anecdotes and clever stories? No. According to the word. Paul said to Titus, an overseer must be holding to the faithful messages taught so that he will be both able to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. So there's your list of people. Now at this point, I want you to listen to me as closely as possible. Because there are two misconceptions for everyone else that is not one of those five to adopt at this point. One is a spectatorial viewpoint of these five. Well, those are some sensational functions. That's awesome. I don't do any of those. Apparently, only pastors do ministry while the rest of us sit in our seats and watch. The second misconception of this list is Maybe for those of you that don't want to be spectators, but you want to move and do something, you uh, think to yourself, well, I, I want to do something with my life for the mission of God, but I, I guess i got to be a pastor to do anything worthwhile in this life. Both of those are as wrong as the Scriptures are clear. Pastors don't do the work of the ministry, and Paul's not done with his list. What does he say after that? For he has personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the training of the saints. The story is not done. He introduces a sixth person in the story. What is a saint, by the way? Contrary to popular opinion, a saint is not someone who after years of toil finally achieves a place of righteousness and can die a faithful servant of God. A saint is someone who has been justified by the grace of God. Have you put your faith and trust and hope in Jesus Christ and repented of your sins? You are what the Bible calls a saint. Say, yeah, but I sinned this morning before I even got to church. Actually, in the parking lot, I yelled at somebody. I'm a sinner. You are a sinner who God calls a saint. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says to God's church at Corinth, unlikely group of believers, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints. A saint is anyone who puts their faith in Christ. They exist by grace, not by works. You know what this verse is telling you and I? This verse is not about the fearsome five. This verse isn't even about apostles and prophets and teachers and evangelists and pastors. They are stepping stones. They're just a means to an end. They're not even the point of the passage. The saints are the point. You, my brothers and sisters, are the core of this verse. You are the point to train you and I to do the work of the ministry. All of this exists as a means so that the church of God would come together, be strengthened, and be sent out as worshipers who worship by learning about who God is together, by giving and being generous together, by serving one another, by being on mission in community. And by ministry, I do not mean you quit your vocational job and become a full-time vocational minister. Wrong. This text is not saying, I, Paul, exist so that the stay-at-home mom can stop doing what she's doing and work in a church. No. Paul is saying, I am saying what I am saying so that the stay-at-home mom can be faithful on mission as a minister of God, as a stay-at-home mom in her own living room. I'm writing this not so that the plumber can quit his job and be a missionary, but so that the plumber can be a faithful plumber in context of where he works and lives, and so he knows how to uphold his integrity along with all of those other construction workers that are chiding him for his faith. For the pro athlete to know how to use their gifts and culture by the grace of God. For the philanthropist to know how to give graciously as Christ has given to them. And on and on it goes. You are the ones that the Holy Spirit has called to be out doing ministry in our neighborhood and in our context. That's why the church assembly exists. We don't come here on Sundays so that you can be passively entertained. I don't know if you figure this out at this point, but we are not very entertaining. And there's better entertainment if that's what you're after. An hour and a half north, you'll, uh, south, you'll find yourself in Hollywood. If that's what you want, go to, go to Los Angeles. But if you want to be trained and edified, if you want to encounter the presence of the living God, find a group, a community of like-minded believers that have the word of God cracked open. Begin to call upon the Holy Spirit. It's for the building up of the body, for radical mission and intense worship of a God whose kingdom is expanding in Christ. That building of the body occurs when we know what we believe and why we believe it. That's theology. And when we know who we believe and we follow him, that's worship. You see, theology, what we know from the scriptures, should always cause us to overflow in worship and mission. Taking what we know about God Seeking conformity in every area of our lives. This is what it means to be filled with all the fullness of God. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask specifically some of you who perhaps have lived as a Christian your entire lives, maybe for longer than I've been alive, and yet you would say to yourself in the quietness of your own heart, I I am a Christian by name, 
but for some reason I feel dry, I feel empty, I feel like I have no purpose, I feel like I'm a Christian in name only, is there not more to this life than that? I would lovingly and excitedly encourage you to pick up the historical call of the Christian faith and take it seriously. Begin to read the Gospels, begin to read the book of Acts and ask yourself, as you read the book of Acts, could this not come true in Santa Barbara? Could this not actually happen in my own life in Carpinteria and in Ventura? Is this stuff from 2,000 years ago or does the Holy Spirit want to bulldoze spiritual darkness where I live today? I say that and I implore you to do that because you can and God will let you go through your entire Christian life letting all of that pass you by. Or you can choose to jump into the swell of God's glorious reign and enjoy and experience it for himself. If, that's, if that sounds like the type of Christianity you want to live, if you are finished and disgusted with passive Christianity where you are allotted nothing but to sit in a pew and listen to stuff being said, and you would rather expand the horizons of your soul to take in more of God day by day, if you would rather, instead of sitting in a pew for the rest of your life, sitting passively, walk as close as you can to the jaws of hell and feel the heat beating against your face and start grabbing people who are jumping into it for the rest of your life. I want to introduce you to the Holy Spirit who will fall upon you afresh to give you everything that you need, including power and enjoyment and the ability to follow Christ into a radical mission for the rest of your life. Heavenly Father, thank you for the mission of God. Thank you that many of us are in this room because we too were blinded by our sin. Someone was faithful with the gospel. Someone was faithful in relationship. Someone was hospitable to us. Someone took the time to speak and to love and to cherish and to come into our lives and to devote their lives to us at a sacrificial cost. And here we are, adoring you, enjoying you, and following you. I pray that you would make us a church like that again. I pray for any of us in this room who are having a hard time connecting our faith with our vocations, with our our normal life, so to speak, from Monday to Saturday, that, God, you would bring those two together. You would bring together the sacred and the secular and that you would open our eyes to see you at work in our lives right now. And ultimately, Lord, I pray that we would believe and read and study and trust your word as more than just a piece of clever literature but as you, by your tremendous grace, saying, I want to speak to my people. God, speak to us today. Speak to us in our hearts, in our minds, prophetically, through your word, through prayer, through worship. I pray above all things, God, that you would keep us from being complacent ever, that you would light a flame of fire in our hearts for the grand story of what God is doing on the coastlands. In Jesus' name. Amen.